you have your Bibles today, would you open to Psalm 17, the 17th Psalm. Psalm 17. Over the last couple of Sundays, we've seen psalms penned by David in which he expressed his concern that the faithful and godly had ceased to live as they should and the effects it had on the culture. Then we saw the description of the lostness that occurs. Today, we're going to look at another psalm that David has penned. It's actually a prayer of David, and we're going to see a different element in regard to what David understands, and that's some secrets to success that David mentions as he prays about a problem he's having. Now, as we read this, I'm going to tell you that we understand it's a prayer and so forth, but we do not know the definite details surrounding this prayer. It is very likely this could relate to the time when David was running from Saul and maybe a time when he was almost captured. I don't know that for sure. But as we read this prayer, if you'll look, you will obviously see the confidence that David has in God. He's confident that God hears him. He's confident that God will respond to his need. He's confident in God and his ability. And as we read this prayer, I want you to be on the lookout because within this prayer, David mentions five things that become secrets to success in life. So let's look at what this has to say. Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have proposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to earth as a lion is eager to tear its prey and a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Here's a prayer 
David is offering a prayer to God, addressing an area of concern in his life. And as we examine what David says, what we really see is David is offering statements of, here's things I understand that will be profitable to me. Things that if I habitually hold to, they will lead to success for me. Not necessarily financial wealth, not necessarily prosperity or uh, privilege within society, but spiritual success. In the realm of Christian life, in the realm of living faith, in regard to our relationship and walk with the Lord, secrets that are successful or lead to success. I want us to pull these five things out of this prayer this morning so that we might incline our hearts to habitually apply them to our lives. So let's look. David reveals some secrets to success. The first is this, honesty with God. You see this in the first two verses, how he opens up his prayer. David openly expresses himself with transparency before God. He is laid open before the Lord, willingly to honestly speak to God. He is suffering, and he feels that it is unjust. In fact, if you consider how he describes this situation, you see that. David says that he is upright, that his cause is just. That he is not deceitful. Being upright and just, why should he suffer so? It just doesn't seem right to his way of thinking, and he speaks honestly to God about it. He doesn't put on a pious front. He reveals the hurts of his heart, and he says, God, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm living how I'm supposed to live, and this is still happening to me. I don't think it's right. He's honest. He's honest with God. Now, we all know, those of us who know the life of David, that there were times that David's own actions, well, that caused his problems. But this is not the case here. In this situation, David is just. He is upright. He's the one doing what should be done. And yet he founds or finds himself being persecuted and chased and hunted. And he can honestly express it to God. He can honestly lay himself open before the Lord. He can cry to God. Asking God to attend his needs, to bring his vindication, because here's the situation. Something that some of us need to learn as children of God, as people who are seeking to live out our Christian faith daily, is that success requires honesty with God. Too many of us try to do a, a bait and switch with God in areas of our lives. Too many of us try to withhold things from God or cover things up from God. Too many of us feel we can't just be open with the Lord. But the reality is, if we are going to be successful in our Christian walk, we need to get to the place where we can just be 
laid bare before God. Where we can be transparent and express our hearts to God. Where we can be like Peter who stands before the Lord and says, I am a sinful man. Or we can be like the father who came before the Lord and said, Jesus, I believe, but you're going to have to help my unbelief. Or where we might be like Thomas and just honestly say, we don't know the way. Or maybe like Martha who comes before the Lord frustrated because she's doing ministry and other people just don't seem to be doing what they need to do. Or maybe like Nicodemus who comes and expresses his lack of understanding right to Jesus. Some of us need to quit playing our pious games with our Heavenly Father and just get real before Him and be honest. And say, here I am and here's my faults. Here's where I don't have understanding. We have to get to the place where we admit our our failures, admit our doubts, acknowledge our problems, express our confusion, and just be honest about the frustrations we feel as a child of God. We have a heavenly father who is completely approachable. Some of you haven't experienced that with earthly fathers. But you have a heavenly father who is completely approachable and open and wants you just to come and be completely honest and transparent before him. You see, withholding things from God simply hurts us. When I'm not willing to be completely open with God and bear my soul before him, I'm not hurting God at all. I'm hurting myself. You know as well as I do, God already has a knowledge of what we think and what we feel. God already knows everything that's in our heads and our hearts. We're not withholding information from God. When we try to withhold something, we're not keeping God from knowing it. We're just keeping ourselves from moving forward and experiencing his healing and his peace and his strengthening. We understand God knows. In Psalm 44, the Bible says God knows the secrets of our hearts. The writer of Hebrews says God knows every intention and inclination of the heart. We don't withhold anything from God even when we try to withhold from God. God knows everything. Yet we still try to withhold things from him. And it just hurts us. Remember what Jesus said there in Matthew 6 when he's trying to teach his disciples how they shouldn't have to worry about everything and be consumed with everything? And he said, look, your heavenly father knows what you have need of before you even ask. But you hear that and then you say, well, wait a minute. If God knows what I have need of before I even ask, then why do I have to ask? He already knows I need it. So what's this big deal about just being completely bare and honest before God, completely transparent? If he already knows, then why do I have to do that? Well, my friends, here's the thing. Our willingness to admit our need before God expresses our trust in God's ability. Our trust in his willingness to take action. When we Come to God and honestly admit, here's my need, here's my concern, here's my hurt. 
Here's my failure. What that's really doing is showing I trust God enough to give it to him. It's not so much about making sure God knows as it is making sure I know I can trust God and he will take action on my behalf. That's why this becomes important. Being completely honest with God is more about healing our hurts, being strengthened in our difficulties, having our needs met because we're expressing our faith. It demonstrates a dependency on the grace and mercy of God when I will come before him and honestly say, here's where I'm confused. Here's where I messed up. Here's where I have doubts. Here's where I'm weak. Here's what I just can't figure out, God, and I don't understand. But I depend on your grace, your mercy, your wisdom. I trust in you, God. That's the place where we receive strength. That's the place where we receive comfort. That's the place where understanding begins. You see, when we come to God with that kind of dependency, that's when our lives become lives filled with his rich mercy and unending love, where we experience him. That's where you see him respond. Like when Peter said, I am a sinful man, but Jesus responded. Jesus responded to Peter's honesty and gave him a new life. Jesus responded to that father who doubted and cast a demon out of his son. Jesus responded to Thomas and said, let me explain the way. Jesus responded to Martha to let her see the bigger picture of the kingdom. Jesus responded to Nicodemus so he might have clear understanding. When we open our lives up honestly before the Lord, we see the Lord respond. God knows what you have need of before you even ask. Then why ask? Because when I do, I demonstrate my dependency on him and he responds. We have to be honest with God. If we're going to be successful in our Christian walk, in our lives of faith, living out the tenets of Scripture, we have to start by being honest with God about our failures, our weaknesses, our confusion, our doubts. Here I am, God, warts and all. David here reveals a second secret that leads to success. And that is humility before God. If we're going to live our lives of faith with success, we'll have to do so with humility. You see this in verses 3 through 5, this humility that David has expressed. David opened up his heart to be tested by God. In fact, the test has happened. He has said, you have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You've done your examination. You have tried me, he says, and you have found nothing. David has opened up his life to be examined by God. He has called out to God and said, God, examine my heart that there might be no iniquity found within me. Here we see someone who does not shy away from the examination of God for the purpose of being purged from sin, living a life that is free of sin. That's what David was doing in his humility. You see this mind expressed, this heart revealed 
In what David wrote in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my anxieties, and see that there is no wicked way in me. God, I humbly come before you and ask, will you examine me that you might cleanse my life of sin? With humility, I fall before you and submit to your evaluation of my life. That's what David's doing in this prayer. And in his heart to be evaluated, he mentions three specific things. He says, God, examine me. Look at my heart. I humbly submit to you. And he says this, I'll commit myself to avoid sin. He says, with my mouth and with my actions, I'll submit to your standards, God. In fact, he uses these words, by the word of your lips. In other words, by what God has dictated as the standards of life. God dictates these are the standards of life. Okay, God, I'll commit myself to those. In humility, I will conform myself to your standards. I will bind myself to the authority of your lips. In other words, your word is the authority over my life. What David is professing here is to live in submission to God's word. That the statutes of the Lord would hold authority over his actions, his attitudes, and his words. For the purpose of keeping him from sin. David also, through humility, sought to live under the guidance and direction of God. He mentions it here in his Psalm, uphold my steps in your paths. In other words, God, guide me that I may surely abide in the paths of righteousness. Because as sure as I try to guide my own course, I'll go off course. So God, you guide my steps that I might walk the paths of righteousness. See, in, in coming with humility before the, the Lord, David said, examine my heart, help me commit to avoiding sin, guide my life. And in these three things, he avoided ungodliness and pursued holiness. Now, obviously not to perfection, we know his life story, but in this instance, he's living a life of godly pursuit based in humility. My friends, success comes from a humble heart. If we are going to live our lives with success, being successful in our Christian walk, being successful in being conformed to the image of Christ, being successful in being who God is calling us to be, we will have to practice humility. We need to submit to the examination of God with a humble heart. With humility, we need to submit to God's examination and evaluation of our lives. How frightening is that, though? To tell God, I want you to search the secret places of my heart and see everything that's there. And then point out the sin. Point out the iniquity so it can be addressed. That's the humility that's required. To take the words of David and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
That should be our plea. And we have a leg up on David, by the way, because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And the Spirit of God within us can provide a real-time x-ray of our spiritual condition. The Holy Spirit can provide an immediate analysis of our spiritual health. It's like that live view sonar Mark was talking to me about this morning where you can see the fish in real time right there swimming. The Holy Spirit can do that in our hearts. The reality is the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and use it as the test for our spiritual health. The diagnostic tool for spiritual health becomes the Word of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and uses it as a diagnostic evaluation of our spiritual health. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, to the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. God's Word is a diagnostic tool. The Holy Spirit uses it to diagnose our spiritual health. The standards of God become the test of spiritual health. And then the Word of God becomes the treatment administered to bring us to spiritual health. God's Word is the evaluation. God's Word is the cure. The application of the truth of God's Word brings us to a place of spiritual health and helps us maintain spiritual health. When... I caught COVID and had to have all that stuff done and whatnot. One of the things they had me do was get these bottles of vitamins. I'm supposed to take all these vitamins. I've never taken vitamins before. You know? I mean, I eat bacon. I got to give you something. But I had these bottles of vitamins, and here's what I've been told. They're to help maintain you in a healthy state. That's God's word. The medicine to get me healthy and then the vitamins to maintain health as applied by the Holy Spirit. When I come with humility and say, God, examine me. The Holy Spirit's going to use the word to examine me and apply the word to strengthen me. We need to submit to the authority of God's word then. If God's word is the diagnostic tool and the treatment administered, we have to submit to the authority of God's word. It does me no good to have a medication and never take it. It does no good for the doctor to say, you need this test and this exam to determine what's wrong and for me to say, no, I don't think I'll have that. God's word is the diagnostic tool and the the treatment needed. And the reality is we have to submit to the authority of God's word. We have to commit ourselves to live by the word. And in doing that, we do what David said, I want to avoid sin. The Holy Spirit... As he resides within us, gives us understanding in the word, application of the word, that we might live in the statutes of God and avoid sin. It is the Holy Spirit abiding within us who helps us grasp the standards of God, understand the standards of God. It is he who empowers us to imply the standards of God, live in the standards of God, and resist temptation by the truth of God. But if I don't submit to the authority of God's word, then it doesn't really matter. If I'll mingle God's word with a little bit of what is out there on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and what the news said here and what that popular person said there, and just 
does me no good. I have to commit myself to the full authority of God's word. And I have to submit to living under God's guidance so that I walk the paths of righteousness. Humility involves me coming before the Lord and saying, God, I don't want to chart my own course. I want to follow your course. Keep me on the paths of righteousness. And again, we have a leg up. David prayed that, yet he did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He just had the movement of the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit living within you moment by moment, second by second, if you're a child of God, there to lead you and guide you into truth, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit leads us down the paths of righteousness for his sake. If I'm willing with humility to submit to him and follow him. If I'll do these things, they combine to allow me to pursue a life of godliness and Christ-likeness. When I will practice humility and ask God to examine me, allow his word to be applied as the authority of my life and follow him down the paths of righteousness, what happens is I come to this place described in Ephesians chapter 4 where the Bible says we come to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is the ultimate goal. So humility becomes such a key to success, but David doesn't stop there. He mentions something else. Another key to being successful in life, and that is to have honor for God. Honor for God. In verses 6 through 9, David in his prayer devotes his attention to honoring God, to bringing praise to the Lord. It's a segment of worship within this prayer. He focuses his efforts on honoring God. In fact, if you take this entire text and you take this prayer and you divide it into the topics it discusses, what you're going to find is David devotes more attention to giving honor to God than he does anything else. In two verses, he's honest with God. In three verses, he expresses humility before God. In three verses, he speaks of the hostility that he faces. In two verses, he talks about the confidence he has in God. In one verse, he talks about the source of satisfaction. But in four verses, four verses, he speaks of the character and the attributes of God for which he should be praised and honored and glorified. You see, David acknowledges the problems. He talks about this and that and the other. But the bulk of what he has to say is, God, here's how great you are. Let me honor you. David proclaimed God's faithfulness, that God is faithful and trustworthy to hear him and to respond. David spoke of God's marvelous loving kindness. That is God's steadfast love, his unchanging love in the face of all difficulties or whatever came. David recognized the help and the salvation that God alone provides, that God is the only source of real help and salvation. David acknowledged that God had kept him as the apple of his eye. That is that valuable, most central element that is in the center, the most protected place, the pupil. 
David stated the confidence that we can all have in God's protection, in his provision, that God hides his own under the shadows of his wing. In four verses, David pulls out six attributes and characteristics of God for which he should be worshipped and praised. David had a priority on bringing honor to God. Even under persecution, he worshipped because of God's unfailing, steadfast love. In fact, as I read this prayer initially, it occurred to me that when I got to that part of the text, that was really the verses of a worship song David was offering in the form of a prayer. He devoted so much of his prayer to worship. The overwhelming grace and love of God just led David to a place of worship. Yes, he had some tough circumstances going on around him, but when he considered the greatness of God and the steadfast love of God, it just brought him to a place of worship. He just wanted to honor God. In our Christian walk, success involves a life of worship. If I'm going to be successful in living my life in a way that honors Christ and growing to be who God's calling me to be, it will involve a life of worship. In fact, we need to recognize God's steadfast love in our lives. We need to open up our hearts to express the gratitude that we can have when we come to see his marvelous loving kindness at work in the midst of everyday life. When we would take time to recognize God's character, his love, his grace at work in our lives, if we would just open up our eyes to the mighty works of God's grace and mercy every day, we would find our hearts inclined just to give him honor. When we'd stop focusing on all the junk around us and truly recognize the goodness of God, our hearts would be inclined to worship. will live lives of worship. Day in and day out, our hearts will swell with an adoration for God. We will recognize this marvelous love, this steadfast love, and we'll be able to say, God, I just honor you. I honor you even in the midst of a storm. Those who are successful in their Christian walk are generally those who live lives of worship. So what they do is come to a place where they will bask in the steadfast love of God instead of wallowing in the misery of trials and difficulties. They recognize God's goodness and they worship him because of it. There's a fourth secret David mentions here. A secret to success in Christian living. And that is understanding hostility is not bigger than God. David acknowledges that in verses 10 and 12, or 10 through 12. He recognizes that, yeah, he faces hostility, but it's not bigger than God. Yeah, there's some problems out there, but they're not bigger than God. There's some mean people out to get him. They're not bigger than God. David was willing to speak to God about the hostility he faced and to acknowledge, but God, it's not bigger than you. 
He didn't ignore his suffering. He didn't ignore the problem. He discussed it with God, but he did so with a confidence in God. I mean, he spoke about how the people were removed from compassion and pity. They had shut up their fat hearts, he said. That's to be removed from compassion and pity. They arrogantly opposed him, openly opposed him. He seemed to be in a losing position. He faced those who would lurk about just looking for the opportunity to destroy him. He had some problems, but they weren't bigger than God. And so he had a confidence in God. He was able to express his concern to God, ask God to act on his behalf, and not worry about it again because God was bigger. You see that in verse 13 and 14. He spoke to God, he invoked God's action, and then he didn't dwell on the problem anymore because God was bigger. He was confident in God. He had a confidence in God that brought a peace to him. He knew that there was hostility of an enemy that was not bigger than God. He was confident. He was sure that God's ability was greater than the enemy's ability. He was confident. He believed that God possessed the wisdom and the power that was needed to conquer the enemy. He was confident. He knew there was nothing that he could do in the situation anyway. God was bigger than the problem, so he was just confident that God would handle it. He was confident in God. My friends, as we live our Christian lives to be successful, what we need to know is success is being confident in the face of hostility. But that is confident in God, not our own ability. Confident in God. Confident that God is bigger. The reality is there are many times trouble fills our lives. And each time something causes us problems or difficulties, it's easy to become consumed with worry and dread. It's easy to become obsessed with those who hurt us or misuse us. But rather than being consumed with such things, we are just be confident in God that he can handle it. In fact, we're going to just cast our care upon him and let him worry about it. That's what Peter said, casting your cares upon God. Why? Because he cares for you. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Be confident in God regardless of what you face. Be confident that God's bigger that God's stronger, that God's got more wisdom, that God's got more foresight. We need to have a confidence in God's wisdom and his ability. We need to be confident he knows what to do and when to do it and how to do it. We need to be able to confidently speak to God about what's going on and then trust in his ability, confident that he will deliver us and vindicate us according to his wisdom and his time by his plan. Confident in God. We need to be confident that he is sovereign and can be trusted in the difficulties of life. When we can be confident in God that way, we will find a peace in the midst of whatever we face. 
Because whatever we face, no matter how big it is, still is it bigger than God. Our confidence in God brings a peace that Philippians describes as a peace that will guard our hearts and protect our minds. Because we're confident in God. God is bigger. One last thing. As we look at this prayer of David, he mentions one last thing that really leads to success in our Christian walk. And that is hope of satisfaction in God. The last verse, he says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. David expresses here his deepest desire of satisfaction can only be met in God's presence. Regardless of what happens in the world or in his life, he will find satisfaction in the presence of God. It's within God's presence he's satisfied. Satisfaction came in abiding in God's presence and quite honestly would not be fully realized until he lived in the glorified state with his glorified God in his glorified home in eternity. That's when his satisfaction would be full. He mentions here that there are others in the world who find their satisfaction in the world. He says something about they find satisfaction in the treasure of the belly or the womb. He talks about how their satisfaction is vested in growing families and having heirs. And in the ancient world, that was such a big deal. There was such prestige and status that came from that. Ultimately, what he's saying is this. I recognize that most of the people in the world seek satisfaction in the things of the world, but I understand this. I could never be satisfied apart from God. I'll never be satisfied away from God's presence. And I'll never be fully satisfied until I know God in perfect presence. That's what he's acknowledging. He doesn't seek satisfaction in the world, but in God. His desire is to abide with God, to dwell in his presence, to be satisfied. And that satisfaction would rest in his hope of eternity. I want you to know something, my friends, as a Christian living in this world, as a born-again believer trying to live out the life Christ has called you to live, as a child of God trying to become that child that God is calling you to be, you need to understand success requires knowing where satisfaction is found. We need to have the proper perspective in this. As a child of God, I will never be satisfied in the things of the world because I'm not of this world. My citizenship is in heaven. Now, there are things in the world I can enjoy, sure. There are things in the world that are pleasurable. But only true satisfaction can come from knowing the true and living God. That's the only source of satisfaction. The world will never satisfy your deepest desires. It can't. Nothing in this world can satisfy your deepest desires. 
I understand lost people out in the world trying to be satisfied with all kinds of things in the world, but too many times born-again believers are engaged and entangled in trying to be satisfied with things of the world. I want to tell you, if your satisfaction is vested in worldliness and things of this world, you will not be satisfied. In fact, if you look to be satisfied in the world, you're going to be just like the Rolling Stones. You know them, right? I can't get no satisfaction. As long as you look for your satisfaction in the world, you might as well join the Stones because you'll never have it. But the Apostle Paul said, I have found satisfaction because I have learned I have learned to be content in all situations because I have learned satisfaction is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of what the world does, I have found a Savior, Jesus Christ, who strengthens me that I can do all things. You know that verse out of Philippians isn't talking about winning the football game or playing the best instrument. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's talking about suffering. Go back and look at it in context. It's about suffering. Here's what Paul says. I have found that the strength Christ gives me brings a satisfaction to me that it doesn't matter what the circumstances are around me, I'm satisfied in Christ. I'm satisfied with him and in him. My friends, our satisfaction will only come in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and it will only culminate fully one day in glory. Satisfaction in this life can be found in a relationship with Jesus and it will be fully culminated when we see him just as he is. If you're here and you have been trying everything to find satisfaction in your life, you've tried satisfaction through careers, through relationships, through possessions. You've tried to find satisfaction through good grades or through activities or through sports. You've tried to find satisfaction in all the latest fads and all the popular things. If you've been trying to find satisfaction and you haven't found it, can I ask you, would you try Jesus? You see, Jesus is God who stepped into this world for the purpose of taking our sin upon himself and dying on the cross to pay for our sin. In doing that, he took the wrath of God away from us. He rose from the dead that he could offer us forgiveness and eternal life. If you want to be satisfied, that's where you find it. When you call out to Jesus... And you say, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner, but I believe in you and what you have done. And I'm asking, would you come into my life? Would you forgive me? Would you make me a child of God? Would you give me a home in heaven? And when you do, you're going to come to know what satisfaction really is. But until you know Jesus, you just won't. And until you know Jesus, you can try to be successful. It just won't happen. It all starts with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So do you know him today? I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to have a hymn of invitation.
Our students are about to slip out and go to their assigned responsibilities that they need to cover. And as they get up to move, I'm going to ask everyone just to simply consider this. Do you know Jesus personally? Are you seeking your satisfaction in Jesus? And child of God, you're here today, you know you're born again. Are you doing what you need to do to be successful in life? Your Christian life.